We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, and we've been going through the gospel of Matthew, and in Matthew 11 and Matthew 12 are all about how do you deal with times of conflict. 11 is all about entering into misunderstandings. 12 is all about rejection and conflict. And you know, when you're in the midst of a time of misunderstanding, rejection, conflict, you know, one of the things that can be really helpful is to have some type of anchor to reorient you or remind you of who you are and what you're doing. It can be so disorienting. You know, one of the, the concepts that's come to the fore over the last couple years, you've heard more of terms like gaslighting, where somebody's trying to disorient you so you don't see reality for how it really is. And in times like that, something like an anchor, something like a core conviction can help stabilize you. And what Matthew gives us here in this section, in verses 15 through 21, he takes us back to Isaiah. And in these 10 lines from Isaiah 42, they both explain the conflict that Jesus finds himself in, why he's responding the way he is. But then it also gives us just kind of a mid-story review of the central realities of the gospel. So the way that, you know, they would have experienced Matthew is not kind of slowly walking through it on a week-by-week basis, kind of like we are. They would have heard it, heard it read in its almost totality. So it's two halves. You could take about an hour and a half each, each time. So you'd come and you'd listen to somebody read it or almost kind of present it. And then about chapter Chapter 12 is about we're coming to the halfway point. So at the halfway point, it's just good to remind us, all right, what's this all about? And here we get that uh, revision that, or that reminder. So it's going to explain. So let's pick it up and start in verse 15. And it might be helpful to follow along on your sheet because as we go through this, it'll be really helpful. Some passages, when you see the poetic structure, once you kind of see the structure, it really helps open up the beauty and the meaning. So starting in verse 15, Jesus was aware of this and withdrew. So what was he aware of? We've just seen this very intense conflict with the Pharisees over the nature of the Sabbath. They accuse him of violating the Sabbath. They leave and begin to plot to murder him. And so he's aware of this incredible tension. So he withdraws, but large crowds followed him and healed them all. He warned them not to make him known so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not snuff out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. And the nations will put their hope in his name. So here you have the, there's 10 times in the gospel of Matthew, which is so fascinating, his use of numbers. And there's 10 times he says, and this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. So there's 10 different of these fulfillment formulas. And you know, 10 is kind of the number of wholeness, the number of fullness, completion, 10 commandments, the total vision of honoring God, the 10 plagues, the total act of judgment, these 10 fulfillments. And this is the longest that he gives us. And it comes from Isaiah 42. And he's already 
already used Isaiah to kind of set up all of Jesus's ministry. Isaiah sets up kind of the promise of his birth, the beginning of John's ministry, the beginning of Jesus, the beginning of his healing ministry, what he's doing. And here he's using Isaiah to remind us of what he came to do. And then there's a, this whole string of kind of clauses about um, these, these future things that here's something God's going to do. And then here's something Jesus is going to do. But you notice, I mean, what Jesus is doing, what it says here he's going to do is he's going to bring justice to victory. He's ushering in his kingdom. But then you see this strange element of he withdraws. He pulls back. He actually commands the people who he's healing to be silent. You know, isn't that strange? I mean, is that how the Messiah is going to build his kingdom? I mean, is that how revolutionaries change the world by pulling back and being silent? You know, he wants to be unknown or hidden. That's not how you spark a revolution. You know, what is, what is he doing? And when you see uh, this passage lays out for us both what he's going to do, his work, and then the way he's going to accomplish that, his work and his way. And so what I want us to see as we kind of walk through this is that who Jesus is presented here is also who he can be for you today. So who he is here in Matthew 12 is who he can be for you today. And we see two things. We see his work and then his way and then how we respond. So notice who Jesus is. Do you see, kind of look at the, the poetic structure. There's the first lines where it says, here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight, and I will put my spirit on him. So there's three things kind of about who he is. He is my servant. He is my beloved, my beloved son. And he's the one who I put my spirit on, the one I empower. I've chosen him. I delight in him. I will empower him. So first, you know, who is Jesus? He is the, the servant. And you know, that's echoing Isaiah 42. It's not just echoing Isaiah 42. It's echoing all of Isaiah from 40 to 66. And probably one of the most important passages to, in the Old Testament to understand who Jesus is, what he came to do, what their expectations were when they used the word gospel. Like, what do they mean? It's all through Isaiah 40 through 66 and 40 through 55 are all about this servant who's going to come. And we see at the very culmination in 53 that he's going to be a suffering servant. But he comes as the, the servant. And what's interesting in the Old Testament, that's actually the highest accolade you could ever give to someone. You know, Moses is God's servant. Joshua is his servant. Job, have you considered my servant? It's one of the highest con uh, uh, commemorations that you can have of anyone. Are they his servant? That's his, he's his servant. But notice, it's my beloved because it's my beloved son. And this is echoes Isaiah 42. It's all it's echoes of Psalm 2, where uh, the beloved son is anointed. It's what God reminds them at Jesus' baptism and the transfiguration. He's not just the servant. He is the beloved son, the one in whom I delight. And you know, what I think is so interesting is this image, not just of who Jesus is, but who God is as a father. Here is God the Father who's letting you know that he delights in the Son. And so you see this image of God is not some kind of like esoteric, distant, 
unmoved mover who's this vague philosophical ex. He's someone who delights and he loves his son. There's relational joy. There's relational delight. And can you imagine what it would be like for Jesus to kind of live under the shadow of his father's delight? And one of the glories and beauties of the gospel is that you can be drawn into and you can live under the light of his delight. And it's just worth thinking about, you know, all you fathers in the room, to those, the the children under you, do they live under the shadow of your delight? Do they know that you delight in him? In some ways, he's a model father, but Jesus is the servant. He's the beloved, and then notice he's the empowered one. He's empowered by the Spirit. But what I really want to focus on this morning is notice what he's going to do. And do you see how it's, how it's orchestrated? So first, there's um, seven different kind of verbs here, things that he's going to do. He will proclaim justice to the nations. So this is his work. He's going to proclaim justice to the nations. And then it's balanced at the very bottom by he will lead justice to victory. So they're saying this is what he will do. He will proclaim justice to the nations. He will lead justice to victory. So his concept of justice and a proclamation, and he's leading forth. He's a captain who's leading his army into victory, and he will be victorious. That is his work, a proclamation of justice and leading it to victory. But you notice in the middle, there's three different clauses about what he won't do. He will not argue and shout out. And no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break the bruised reed. He will not snuff out or put out the smoldering wick. So let's just kind of think about those things. What will he do? What won't he do? The first thing is he will do his work is he's going to proclaim justice. He's going to bring justice. And this is a central concept. And, you know, over the last year and a half, you know, one of the great challenges, but also one of the great opportunities is in one sense, the whole world has been clamoring for justice. I mean, people are gathering last year in the streets by the thousands. And what were they chanting? We want justice. What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. So clamoring for justice. And one of the big questions is, all right, the whole world's talking about justice as Christians. One of our core convictions has to be, all right, what are we talking about when we talk about justice? When it says he's going to proclaim this, he's going to bring it in. What are we actually talking about? And one of the fascinating things here is remember the context This is all in the context of a Sabbath controversy. They're arguing about what is right and wrong to do on the Sabbath. And then Matthew says that when he comes, he's going to proclaim justice. Now, do you feel a little disconnect there? Does it feel like, hold on, they're over here arguing about the Sabbath. Who really cares? We got to talk about justice. And what I find so interesting is actually... If you're not talking about a couple of things we see in this passage, you're not talking about what the Bible means about justice. There's two concepts here that can really help be the foundational first principles of thinking about things like justice and Sabbath is one of them. 
You know, when we were in Alabama, there, were, there was a great kind of campaign. It was the last vestige to eliminate some of the blue laws in the county. We were the last county in Alabama where you still couldn't buy alcohol on Sunday. And so there was a big campaign to kind of eliminate that. And all of my predecessors at the First Baptist Church have been the ones who had championing those kind of blue laws. And so I come in and they just expect me to do it too. And I didn't have a lot of energy for championing those blue laws. But it really is worth thinking about. What were those things about? Like, why were they there? Why would they make it, you know, illegal to open up your shop on Sunday or sell certain things on Sunday? What were the actual point underneath all of those things? You know, G.K. Chesterton says, if you're walking through the woods and you come up on a fence, you might want to know why it was put up before you tear it down. Because if you don't, you might find yourself staring an angry bull right in the face. And so it's worth thinking, all right, what? So the context is talking about justice, but then it's Sabbath. And that's kind of hard for us because the idea of Sabbath doesn't really uh, it compute for us. It feels so remote. We have to remember, I mean, this is one of the key symbols of what it meant to be an Israelite among the nations. So, for example, just kind of raise your hand if you know that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. How many of you know that? That's pretty good. Some of you don't, but very good. Most of you know that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. Now, do you know that Israel was closed on Saturday? The whole kind everybody, it was, the whole thing was closed. So it doesn't matter if when this is over, you have a craving for a Chick-fil-A sandwich, you can't get it unless you have one saved. And this is what, it doesn't matter what you wanted to do on Saturday. If you wanted to go to the market and shop or whatever you're going to do, the whole country was closed. And not just the whole country. At this point, they had been dispersed all throughout the Middle East. So there was a huge Israelite contingent in Alexandria and in Babylon and in Egypt, even in in France and Gaul. And uh, they were closed on Saturday. And you think, Why? And one of the reasons it was a significant marker of their identity, but really the Sabbath laws were the original, the very first. David Dabe, who was a uh, a legal scholar, so you know the amazing thing about the Sabbath is the Sabbath is ultimately about economic equality. The Sabbath is the first law in recorded human history that presents aspects of this economic equality. It is, he argues, it is the foundation for all Western human rights because it's the very first labor law in recorded history and divinely mandated for rest. The whole point of it was to help fight against mass exploitation, about the objectification of people and work. You know, one of the great battles then and now is to remember that you are a human being, not a human doing. And the Sabbath is a weekly reminder to force that reality on you that you're a human being, not just a human uh, doing. It was a mercy where you couldn't just give yourself over to a life of unending uh, pursuit of profit, nonstop work. It was all about economic equality. And so Sabbath has to be a context. When you think about justice, Sabbath is a context. Another context that you see in this passage is the law of gleaning. And gleaning, uh, you get that in the first verse when they're walking through the fields and they start grabbing things to eat and the Pharisees get really angry and upset. And it's like, what are they angry and upset about? Why were they watching? 
And what they were actually doing is taking part in the, in the law of gleaning. So gleaning was, it was the responsibility of landowners who owned land to, uh, to not maximize the harvest on their land, but to leave space so the poor could come through and get, uh, get their needs. And so what you see here in the Bible is that this idea of justice is not, this is economic justice. The context is economic justice. And it's not really about the elimination of poverty. The Bible kind of has a sober view about that. It's not the kind of thing that can really be eliminated. But what it is very focused on is focused on protecting the weak, the vulnerable members of society, so that they're not wrongly exploited or wrongly deprived of their work. So as we kind of have to think through, how do we think biblically about issues of economic justice? There's kind of two lines that gleaning helps us think through. So with the gleaning law, there's two ways you can be wrong. One thing that's wrong that makes God angry is when you do the work and then don't receive the fruits of that labor. That's wrong. But another thing is wrong is when you don't do the work and you do receive the fruits of someone else's labor. Both of those things are wrong, and both of those are in the context here of gleaning that he's taken. So when you think about his work, he's coming to bring justice. But what does that justice actually look like? And then notice the, the confident de- declaration at the end. He is not going to stop until he has led it to victory. And you all know that Greek word, victory. You, many of you have that on your, on your body right now. It's a Greek word, Nike, Nike, victory. He's bringing victory, not going to stop. So that's his work. But now notice, what is he going to do? How is he going to bring it about his way? And I find it so interesting when he tells you about the way he's going to bring his work. Why do you think he tells you the three things he's not going to do? Isn't that interesting? You know, it's, you can learn a lot about somebody's implementation of their policies when they tell you, this is what I'm not going to do. I'm really fighting the urge to do a George Bush impression of the no new taxes, not going to do it, but I won't do that. <laughs> not going to do it. I'm not going to do that impression. So you think about the things, these are the three things he's not going to do. And notice it's very strange. He is not going to argue or shout and no one will hear his voice in the streets. What is that about? He's just been engaged in this explosive public controversy that's getting incredibly tense. And then he's not going to argue. He's not going to speak out. You know, when he's confronted, he will defend himself, but he's not going to initiate that confrontation. He's not going to shout. He's not going to scream. Then how in the world is he going to get his message out? How in the world are the nations going to believe if he talks so silently or so quietly? I mean, this is a bad strategy for or a revivalist or a revolutionary. What kind of strategy is this? He's just going to quietly go about his work in inconspicuous ways without any hyper fanfare. You know, Satan's already tempted him once to go about his business with the showtime religion. Take yourself up to the top of the temple. There will be a crowd. You jump off. Everybody, what a spectacle. Everybody will be amazed and they will follow you. How easy can it be? And then you don't actually have to deal with all of the difficult realities of just people. You can keep yourself separated from them up there on the top. You can do this spectacle and they'll love you and they will follow you. That temptation hasn't stopped. It just keeps working itself out in different ways. This is the next iteration of that temptation. 
And Jesus says he's not going to do it. He's not going to kind of get his media machine going to get his Jesus brand spinning. He's not doing carnival Christianity where he's going to put up the big tent and just kind of have the, the festival. He's not sending out Peter as his hype man who's going to get all the towns hyped up. He's not going to curate a version, a perfect Pinterest version of himself to present to the world. He's not going to do any of those things. No spectacle, no hype. And notice how un, he's, he's so, I don't even know how to phrase this in correct gra grammar. He's so not pushy. He's not pushy. And you know, some, some of you know you're kind of forced in a world where you have to be really aggressive or assertive. And you feel like if you're not aggressive or assertive, you just won't succeed. Maybe you're in you know, a job in sales or coaching or marketing or a corporate world where you just feel like if I'm not aggressive or assertive, I'll just get run over. Maybe Jesus can be a lot of help for you here because he's going to bring about his victory, but he's going to do it in such a way that's peaceful and gentle and not aggressive, not assertive. You know, there's funny stories about Bill Murray when he was just trying to make it as an actor in New York and he used to wear like the most ridiculous clothes. That actually hasn't changed. He still does that. But he used to wear the most ridiculous clothes and like go into these high-end restaurants that he wanted to eat at but couldn't get in. And he'd make such an obnoxious scene that just to, just to shut him up, they would eventually give him a table. Because he knew if you could be loud and pushy enough, eventually you can get what you want. And that's the way it is in the world. But that's not the way it is for this kingdom that he's building. Why? You know, he will have peace even in the midst of the conflict. And he will have his church to have peace. And you know, one of the things I'm so thankful about is kind of the peaceful nature of, of this church. And it's something we want to pray for and cultivate and continue to, to love and, and encourage. It's in a time of conflict, a time of testing and tense situations. This is the way he's going to do his work. But notice also, notice things he's not going to do. He's not going to shout and be demonstrative in the streets. He's not going to break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick, a candle that's almost burned out. He's not going to break the bruised reed. Look at who he heals. You know, the bruised reed, what is that, a reed? That would be so common, and it's just kind of like a, a, a thing of grass that you'll see everywhere in Israel, most often by water, but it was so common. And they could be useful. You, know, you can make pins out of them. You can make little flutes out of them. There were tons of just little things that they could be useful for. But, you know, a reed that was bruised, and by bruised, think broken. So, like, the reed that's on the stalk, and it's kind of been halfway broken, and it's just kind of dangling. And you think, all right, well, you know, what good is this? It's so common. And you think, all right, how could a reed, how would they get broken? I mean, oftentimes they're just kind of, you know, no reed is going to break itself. But often they're just collateral damage of the carelessness of others. So you kind of have kids carelessly tromping through the reeds and they'll break them. Or maybe the reed was in the way of some ambitious building project for lakefront property. Or maybe it was just harsh winds or heavy rains. Or maybe just wild ducks were fighting and broke the reed. You think, how did the reeds get broken? And what's interesting is the image here is that once the reeds are broken, see, the reed is a symbol of weakness. And then once they get broken, it's then a symbol of uselessness. So here's something that's weak, but now it's broken. It's useless. And I wonder if there are any bruised reeds here this morning. You know, anyone over the age of seven, life has bruised you. So are you a bruised reed? 
You know, the idea is, oh, these are these things that are good for nothing. They're not productive. They've lost even their marginal value. And what's interesting, Jesus already called the burden to himself. If you're burdened, come to me, I'll give you rest. And now he calls the bruised. Come to me and I won't break you. You know, a whole nation can be bruised, not just individuals. You know, Charles Spurgeon thought the saddest verse in the Bible was Exodus 6, 9, where Moses comes with these tremendous promises to the people of Israel that God is going to release them and redeem them with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. And so they eagerly, all right, let's go. And the first attempt they have just gets squashed, utterly just flattened by Pharaoh. And then they cry out in desperation and total depression. And Moses tries to encourage them. And then Exodus 6, 9, it says they couldn't hear him because their spirit was broken. A whole nation of just broken reeds. You know, the prophet, in Proverbs, it says a broken body you can heal, but who can heal a broken spirit? And here it is. He's the one who, when he comes, he, can, he won't break the bruised reed. You know, most revolutionaries don't have a lot of time for the little guy. Most revolutionaries don't have a lot of time for the bruised reeds. They will claim to fight for them, but they don't spend a lot of time with them. And here he is. He's not going to break them. And then notice the thing that he's not going to snuff out is the smoldering wick. The image here is like a candle who's almost burnt out. You know, maybe at one time it stood tall. It was strong. It gave out tremendous light. But those days are long gone. Its energy is almost spent. His life is almost completely burned out. This is the image of someone who feels burnt out, used up, washed out. They're a has-been. Their best days are all behind them. And I wonder, has life burned you out? You know, have the things you poured your life into just kind of evaporated into smoke? And you know, sometimes it's just you have all these things you pour your energy and yourself into, like a career, and then you wake up one day and you just feel like, where did time go? Where did life go? Or maybe you poured all of your life and energy into raising children, and you did well. They're on their feet. They're, they're out of the house. And then you come back just one day, and you realize it's so empty, and it's so quiet. And maybe you just feel burned out or maybe your light has faded. You remember a time when you were so zealous for the Lord and you were, you, you burned and you were caught up and you were not going to waste your life and you were going to take his gospel to the nations and you were going to do something great for him. But failures in life and difficulty has just burned you out and the zeal fades. You know, here he comes, he comes for the weak. He comes for those who the world sees as worthless. And isn't this an odd way to bring victory? Isn't this an odd way to usher in your kingdom? But this is the nature of his kingdom, and the possibility of its failure is zero percent. And his kingdom will be marked by a certain gentleness. And I wonder if that marks you. Does that mark your home? Or maybe you find yourself like Jesus. Jesus found himself in a conflict he didn't want, he didn't start, and he didn't want to engage in. And maybe you find yourself in a situation like that. He can help you. But I just look at this and think, what a Savior. I mean, what a Savior. Here is someone who, I mean... Could you imagine how you would think about yourself if this was true of you? But here's someone whose birth was celebrated by angels, who kings from another country came to celebrate when he was born, whose birth was foretold in prophecies, and then yet what did he do for the first 30 years of his life? 
worked in quiet obscurity in his father's workshop. You know, here's someone who doesn't need the excitement from the outside to keep his energy going. He is not a party leader. He is not a status seeker. He is not a celebrity wannabe demigod. And we have no shortage of people like that who want to raise themselves up as great. And here's someone who was great and was willing to lower himself down. He is not grasping for a place or power. And what he offers for us is a completely different path to be in the world. A completely different path for meaning and significance and influence. One thing I was struck by this week, if you've been following along with Christianity Today's podcast on the rise and fall of Mars Hill, it's been very interesting for me to kind of trek with. And they had an interview this week with Andy Crouch, who was talking about actually his book, Culture Making, which he wrote probably almost 20 years ago. And in that book, he's got a real interesting comparison between Mother Teresa and Princess Diana. So Mother Teresa and Princess Di actually died on the same week. And he says, you know, these two characters offer such different paths to influence in our world. You know, at the time when they died, it was said that these two women were the two most recognizable women on the planet. Now, wild. But think about the different paths that led them to their celebrity. You know, he says, you know, kind of the irony is that in our world now, everybody wants to be like Princess Diana, but nobody can. Anyone could be like Mother Teresa, but nobody wants to. So kind of like, what's the path? So like Princess Diana, I mean, everybody wants to be like that, but there's really just not that many beautiful, stunning, gregarious people around, and there's just not that many princes to marry. I mean, the pool is pretty small, but everybody wants to be like her, but can't, and anybody could be like Mother Teresa and don't. And you think about her, you know, she gave her life utterly to serving the least of these, serving the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks. Uh, But it's the kind of thing where, you know, we don't want the suffering. We don't want the long stretches of anonymity. We don't want the seeming ineffectiveness and the humiliation of walking that path. But here Jesus is laying out this way. This is the way he's going to walk. And notice what this brings. It brings victory. This is the way of conquest. This is the way of victory. And as a result of that victory, notice what happens. The nations will put their trust in his name. That's how they're going to respond. They're going to put all of the nations. The fact that you are here is illustrative that that's a reality. They would have looked at you, us, me, 2,000 years ago and thought, those are the wild barbarians. They live all the way across the sea. They're the wild barbarians. And they have put their trust in his name. We put his trust in his name. Not trust in power or violence or harshness or severity. It's trust in his name. You know, I find it so interesting, you know, when Napoleon was trying to take over Europe, you know, two of his great guns, the great Napoleonic guns that were the technological innovation of the time, these huge guns that took between 12 and 20 people just to move on the first two, you know what he had etched their name on them? Truth and justice. That was the idea whoever wields the biggest guns also gets to determine what's true and what's just, justice. But here, when Jesus is rolling out his big guns, who does he bring as his illustration? Broken reeds and smoldering wicks. 
And then what are they going to do? We don't put our trust in those things. We put our trust in his name because we know that there is no other name under heaven and earth where we can be saved, where salvation can be found. And then we ask ourselves, all right, what is the path he has to walk down to bring justice to victory? Where does that path go? You know, at the cross is the place that he's going to lead justice to victory. And then it's actually the culmination of Matthew is where Jesus tells his disciples, it's in and through you that you're going to take this word to the nation so that they will trust in my name. And you can look at all those three things that he's not going to do his way. The three things that he's not going to do is because all three of those things he actually does or happens to him when he's on the cross. And while he's in the streets and with people, he's not going to cry out. But on the cross, he will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he will cry out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, on the cross, he's going to lead. That's the path to bringing justice to victory because the full force of the penalty of our sins and the justice of God is going to come upon him fully. And he will cry out. See, it's through the cross and the grave and then up to heaven where death is buried and he's raised to new life. And that he, he won't break a bruised reed because the way he's actually going to bruise the head of the serpent is by taking the fatal wound in himself and be broken. And he's not going to snuff out a smoldering wick because on the cross, he himself, who's the light of the world, will be snuffed out. And he leads justice to victory by walking through the path of execution and then exaltation. And then he summons us. We can walk with him. This is the way of status. This is the way of influence. This is actually the way of a significant, meaningful life. It's you can walk with him through that path. And you can take upon the highest honor, the highest acclaim you can ever hear is not 10,000 likes to this post, but it's well done, good and faithful servant. In him, we can be his servant. And in him, we can know what it means to have a heavenly father who looks down upon us and says, well done, uh, my beloved son, my beloved daughter. And he can look upon you with delight. So what we see here is not just the work he's going to accomplish, but the tremendous way he's going to accomplish that work. And he summons us into that work and that way by joining him. We join him by repentance, by repenting of our sins and our repenting of wanting to do these things the very opposite of the way he does. And then we join him by faith to believe that our hope is ultimately in him. It's not in politicians. It's not in power. It's not in earthly technologies or it's not in the science. Our hope is ultimately in him. And that hope comes by the way of the cross and the resurrection. And so every week at Trinity, we take communion because we're reminding ourselves of what it means to walk that way, walking the way of victory. And our holy and gracious Father in his infinite love, he made us for himself. But when we had sinned against him and we became subject to all types of evil and death, in his mercy, he sent his only son into the world for our salvation. And his son, he became flesh. He dwelt among us. And in obedience to God's will, he stretched out his arms and he died on the cross. He offered himself once and for all so that by his suffering and death, we might find life. 
And by his resurrection, he broke all the powers of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. And as our great high priest, he now issues the invitation, come, come to me, take and eat, come and find life. And on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, taking and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after the supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we praise you for your word. We praise you for your work. We thank you for the reality that even though when we look out in our world, it seems so far removed from the reality of real life-giving justice. We thank you for the promise that one day you will bring it to fulfillment. You will bring it to pass. So we ask that you help us to, to think uh, with clarity about these things, to know what your justice is, and then to think with hope about these things, trusting in you to bring it about. And we praise you that part of that justice that you were going to bring about is that you are gentle with the wounded and the weary. So I pray for anyone who's come in in their life, they feel like a bruised reed. They just feel broken, feel battered, feel like they're useless, feel like they're worn down. Lord, we praise you that you will not break them. We praise you that not only will you not break them, you will renew and restore them and put them back together and that you can make their hope stronger and their faith stronger and their love for others and you, you can make that stronger. So we ask that you do that. And we pray for anyone who's come in the room and they can sympathize. They know what it means to feel like you're just a smoldering candle. That's your light. You just don't have any energy to give and you feel almost burned out. We praise you that you have promised not to snuff them out, but you can renew them. You can refresh them. You can restore them. So we ask that you would do that through the, your word and spirit. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.